Before I welcome on yet another amazing guest of the Live Inspired podcast, I wanted to extend my most sincere thank you to each and every one of you for listening in your car, on the bus, while you're training for your next 5K, however you're listening. You, my friends, are a critically important and valued member of our Live Inspired community. If you ever want to get in touch with me, I'm always available on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And you can always send me an email anytime at your convenience to podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, that email, podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. So let's dive into today's episode. You are going to love it. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You know, many of the guests that we have on this show have summited some of the tallest mountains in the world. Some of the guests that we have had have been around the dark side of the moon twice. Some have led massive organizations. Some have overcome seemingly impossible odds. In other words, these are huge huge individuals who've done amazing, massive things in life. Today, in some regards, it will be a little bit more of a topical interview. We're going to be talking about marriage during our conversation today, not only marriage, but the triggers that cause marriages and relationships and partnerships to go sideways. Our guests are Amber and Guy Leah. They have a terrific story. They also have a terrific book called Marriage Triggers. They're going to join us for this episode. What I'm going to encourage you to do is to buckle up, people. And not only buckle up, but open up your heads, your hearts, your journals. Take notes, not only for yourself, but for your partner, for your spouse, for your children, for your aging parents, for your coworkers. Because yes, we're talking about marriage today, but we're really talking about partnership. We're really talking about relationship. We're really talking about the things that set us off and derail relationships and how we can choose to have better relationships going forward. This is a conversation for all of us. I know I learned a lot during this conversation. I know you are going to be learning a lot during this conversation. So my friends, without farther ado, get ready for it as I bring on our newest friends, Amber Leah and Guy Leah. Amber and Guy, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're glad to be here. You know, for us, this is cool because normally it's John with one person, one leader, wow. one astronomer, one author. And today to have a couple doing life together, writing books together, touching lives together is really remarkable. I'm thinking, though, that marriage is hard. I mean, marriage is hard. And maybe the only thing harder than marriage is writing a book with someone. And in particular, <laughs> when you write a book that shares the intimate details of dating and finances and family and faith and life. So on the yeah, front side of this true. conversation, what, what yeah. was that process for you writing this book? Well, well we joke that it, that writing a book on marriage triggers is a marriage trigger in and yeah. of itself. So um, that's definitely true. But, you know, Guy, if you want to speak to that, because this was really your first uh, crack at it. Yeah, this was, you know, Amber and I, we, we are business 
partners together in a production company here in Los Angeles where we do TV and film projects. We, we parent together. We've got four wonderful boys under 12 and we, we homeschool for a time. And, and uh, so we, we work together with the kids and then we decided to do this together. And it was like, we literally share everything together and um, it's been fantastic. But it is; it can be difficult at times, and and like Amber said, it, it could have been a chapter in our book. Yeah. Um, but we work really, really hard um, to do this all together and to find a way to, to do it successfully. So we found a rhythm, and I think that's important in all relationships: is that you find a rhythm that works for you. Ours is certainly unique to us, mm-hmm. and so that was important to just embrace who we are, our circumstances, the times when we could write and collaborate together. And so we we were strategic in setting that up, and sure enough, we finished it. So <laughs> it, it, it literally would be like, okay, guy, you've got two hours to go. I've got the kids. Boom. I'm like, grab my bag, out the door to Starbucks, write for two hours, come home. Amber, it's your turn. Go. You know, it's yeah. that's how crazy it was. But we also <laughs> took some cues from Mark Wahlberg, and he, yeah. <laughs> believe it or not, it sounds a little nutty, but it, it worked for us. He, we noticed, has a very unique schedule where he goes to bed early and he wakes up earlier and he does a workout, a physical workout from like two in the morning, he wakes up and does all of that, then takes the kids to school and does all the things. So we thought, you know, as parents with four young boys at home, we were homeschooling them while we happened to write this book. We just did it for that one year. Mm. And we decided to pull a Marky Mark and we definitely were going to bed early at night. We were waking up at two, three in the morning so we could get a good solid um, four to five hours of writing in together before the kids woke up. We, we have four boys. It's yeah. a testoster home through and through. Congratulations. It's, it's yeah. loud. <laughs> yeah. So we had to be strategic in carving out time during the middle of the night. We became owls, basically, yeah, right. for that time period. Well, as owls, part of the reason for writing this book and part of the reason for the work that you do is to encourage and to coach up people to have better partnerships and better spouses in life. And yet the very first examples of this that we have aren't the one seated across from you while you're writing the book. It's actually the one that, that that raises you. For better and for worse, that's the very first example that you have. So I'm curious, and we'll start with Amber. Growing up, what was the example of parents that you had? What was the example of marriage that you had in front of you? You know, when I was very young, my first memories are really happy ones for the most part. I remember sitting on overturned trash cans in the backyard, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with my brother and playing with our Malmute in the yard and going to church every Sunday with my family. But my background is also filled with a lot of tumultuous conflict and there were a lot of uh, seasons in my childhood that were pretty dark. And that's mostly because my parents had been raised in a very strict separatist cult, believe it or not. Mm. And so they really didn't have a whole lot to do with the world. It was a group that was, if you picture it like an Amish group, but where very simple, they kind of keep to themselves. Um, they don't participate in sports and community. They, they were actually allowed to drive cars and things like that, but couldn't eat in restaurants, for example. You know, they went to church every day. They married within their own group. And so they just, they lived in the world, but they were very separate from it in many ways. And 
it was a, a religious group that was very much about rules and regulations. And as long as you followed rules and regulations, you were okay. But in the real world, it doesn't work that way. And in relationships, they don't really work that way because relationships, the best ones are not really about rules. And so when my parents gave birth to my brother, my older brother, they were still in the cult. My brother was born into it. And then about two years after he was born, they were suddenly and shockingly excommunicated. And so they were thrust into this big world that they didn't really know a whole lot about and were not used to operating in. And I was born right after that. So I grew up in this aftermath of chaos and a lot of anger and depression. And while my parents did the best that they could, and they were very loving in many ways and generous to a fault, it was a difficult way to be raised because I never knew what the next day would bring. Mm. There wasn't a typical normal relationship between my parents or us as they were just learning how to even navigate in the world itself. So, so Guy, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question similar to that in a moment, but before I do, Amber, what was the thing that you learned when you got married, when you had a partner in life that you wanted to do this because you saw your parents doing that? Like it's the one characteristic you knew you had to have. And what's the one thing they taught you not to do because this is how they fought or this is how they did their finances or this is how they did life? Well, I recognized that there was just a lot of um, arguing to for the sake of arguing and just because there there was no purpose in the arguing or the conflict. The, it never led to anything good. And that was one thing that I did not want to repeat in my marriage and, of course, started to repeat in my marriage early on. And then the other thing, though, that was a, was a good takeaway was just – how generous and committed my parents were. In the midst of all of the conflict, they were incredibly devoted to us and to one another, and they were exceedingly generous. As much as they had a lot of wounds themselves, they really cared about other people, and they really wanted to help other people to the best of their ability. And so those were things that foundationally served me well my whole life, and certainly in my marriage. Guy, talk about your family for a while. What what was your family of of origin looking like? Yeah, so I I grew up with two wonderful but hot headed uh, parents. Uh, my dad was Italian American. My mother was Irish Scottish. They were older. They were uh, very very active in in our lives. But we had a lot of a lot of uh, stress and financial stress, particularly in in my family. My parents were in a a really terrible car accident when I was probably in fourth or fifth grade that caused a lot of issues in our family. And it ended up causing so much stress that they really started to fight quite a bit. And um, I re remember trying to stop arguments between my parents when I was very, very young. But when I was about in sixth grade, I believe it was, maybe seventh, um, my father had a, a massive heart attack that was very unexpected. And he survived. And in through his recovery, we noticed a real big change in my parents. And I think that they learned to overlook a lot of the conflicts and all of that. And they, they found a new way to love each other and to present kind of a, a better model of parenting and love for us. And that is something that I, you know, I really cherished. It was a something that was a very noticeable difference when I was younger. So um, it, was, it was really a fascinating change. And going into, into high school and college, my parents were really, really active in 
uh, theater and sports with me and my sister, and they were very active in our community. And it was really had caused such a, a major change for us that we all just became very, very active in all these different areas. And I was in Boy Scouts and fraternal organizations, and, and we just became very, very active in the community. And they really set a, a new kind of model for me about loving each other and, and how to overlook small things. Guy, why, why do you think it is typically through tragedy or near tragedy that we finally wake up to what matters? You know, I, I think it's that many times a lot of us get caught up in the stress and um, the journey of life, trying to work and trying to, to provide for our family and trying to do what's best. And you suddenly, I think we many times lose sight of what's really, truly important. And sometimes you need that defibrillator to kind of come in and shock the system so that you have an opportunity to take another look at your life and realize what truly is is important. And that certainly is what happened in our family. And it really altered the course of our future and, and really changed my childhood and altered you know who I became as an adult. Amber, when did you realize that you had met the one, the perfect one? And then my follow-up <laughs> question is, when did you realize you were wrong? But, but when yeah. did you realize that guy was the one? And then when was that day or that experience, that argument that you realized, what have I done? <laughs> yes, both of those were relevant. Um, well, you know, I, I had actually been engaged to somebody else initially, and I'd had a number of other relationships that I thought were the one, and they weren't. And I was not actually intending on, to date anybody for quite a while. And it was during that non-dating year or so that I met Guy for the first time. We actually met on a, a ski trip with a bunch of other singles up in Mammoth Mountain, California skiing. And we connected that night. It was just a, a hi, how are you? Nice to meet you kind of thing. And then we cut, moved on with our lives. But over the course of that year where I was just sort of letting my heart recover from other past broken relationships, Guy kept coming back to mind, mostly because in our, our circle of friends, I kept hearing about this wonderful person and what great character he had and what a servant's heart he had. They'd go on a camping trip and they'd come back and say, oh, Guy was so nice. You know, he made coffee for everybody early in the morning and was the first one up and really just took care of the campground. And so I thought, okay, well, he's handsome, but I love hearing these things about his character. And so it was a, a slow falling in love, I think, for me over the course of a year, just hearing about him. Eventually, uh, about a year later after we initially met, he asked me out on our first date when I was finally ready to go back to it again. And within a very short amount of time, we were engaged and then married quickly thereafter. But I would say that even during our engagement, I knew that I thought I was getting Prince Charming and he thought he was getting Princess Perfect, and we were both falling short of that ideal. And that came to a head rapidly within our first year of marriage when we realized we were both Mr. Wrong and Ms. Right. All Wrong, and that was really when our trouble started. I think one of the mistakes we make as a society is to focus so much on the ceremony. And this is not a knock yeah. against those who have religious traditions that they hold high, and rightly so. But the idea of the right dress and the right groomsmen yes. and the right – all the stuff that we are focused on, and it takes a ton of cash, a ton it of does. effort, causes a lot of anxiety. 
And then you realize when you're finally on a beach somewhere in a hotel room that night, now it's now it's going to get hard. Like right. the easy part's already behind us and we've got no preparation at all for what's to come. So Guy, back to you, man. When did you, what was it about Amber that you were first really kind of falling in love with? And uh, when did you realize, gosh, this is going to be trickier than I expected? You know, I, I'll say I was kind of caught off guard uh, by Amber because I was, I was at a place where um, I had just come out of a, a relationship that wasn't all that great. And I had also been promoted at my company as an executive. And so I was really wrapped up in that time period. And I really had shifted my focus away from dating towards my career and just said, you know, I'm just going to forget about this because it's not working out on the dating side. And literally that's the, the same weekend that I met Amber was at the same time when I, I remember spending a day just kind of praying and just being like, I'm just done with the dating thing. I'm going to focus on, on my career. And that's really where I'm going to put my attempt, my time and attention right now and serving and all of that. And that weekend, I went away to the ski trip and met Amber. Now, over that next year, I still went through a lot of changes. Even when Amber and I went out on our first date, I mean, that whole time, I kept seeing Amber as a leader within her group of girlfriends. She just had an amazing reputation. I could see her strength and and all that in our conversations and, and everything. And I was just really impressed by everything that I saw. And so when I was finally open again to dating, I was still coming up on my career side. And actually, after our first date, <laughs> um, there is probably mm-hmm. a two or three week gap yeah. when Amber got really frustrated and was like, let me know. She said, you know, look, I had a great first date, but you obviously don't want to have a second. And it, if you want to be been, friends, it that's had been great. maybe a month or so later. Like it, it, it yeah. had been many weeks and are I you, wasn't. Are you guys having a fight right now? No. We might be, we <laughs> no, might be disagreeing actually... about this. No, but it, I was at that point. I I just told him, look, you know, I I thought this was a wonderful first date, and I really enjoy your friendship. But if you're not up for another date, you know, or getting to know me better, that's totally fine. I'll see you around at church. <laughs> and I got the and email at work, and I was, was like, it. wait, 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 wait. What are you doing Saturday night? Like, I I, mm-hmm. I just it just had to snap me out of my career focus, and from the second date forward, it was like, he was all in. We were, yeah, it was on the fast track. <laughs> and probably three months later, I told Amber that I had fallen madly in love with her and we were engaged within four months, within four months of that. And then, um, we got married and we got pregnant within three months of being married. So I will say one of the problems for me that caused some of the, the stumbling blocks early in our marriage was that we went from yeah. marriage to parenting within three months. And we didn't have an opportunity to solidify the foundation of our friendship and our our marriage relationship first. Our focus completely shifted towards preparing to become parents. And so we lost some really valuable building maturity time in our relationship that caused four, five, six years of stumbling right. through marriage. That was a really big mistake. And one of the things I talk about in the book even is how much attention is given to preparing someone for childbirth, but how little attention is given during that time to what is it going to mean to be a parent for the next 18 to 20 years of your life with this child? And, and what is that going to mean for your relationship, your marriage relationship? So we didn't have, we weren't prepared. I certainly was not prepared. Many of our listeners are young folks, newly in relationships. Many of them, however, are new parents. What advice or encouragement would you 
suggest that these new parents take take hold of early in their relationships, early in their their rearing of kids? What advice do you wish someone had told you when you were getting ready to start raising these kids? You know, when I first became a mom, I had been a teacher for 10 years at the middle school, high school level. And I had also taught littles for a long time. I'd been a nanny in college. I'd been around kids my whole life. I had never dealt with any kind of anger or frustration with even with them ever throughout all those years of teaching. And I knew that when I had my own children, they were going to be pretty easy and I was going to be a great mom. And it was a really rude awakening that when I had these beautiful children that I was really struggling with who I suddenly was, who am I now, who are we, and how do I parent them in a way that I long to parent them when I keep feeling triggered. I remember very distinctly early on, and I was living in San Luis Obispo at the time with Guy. We'd moved there for a job, and there was a knock on the door. And I was really embarrassed because Guy had just left for work, and he worked very long hours. I had three children at that point we did that were four and under. So um, all two of them were in diapers. And I was really frustrated. I was snapping at the kids. And this knock came at the door, and I just froze. I was embarrassed that I, I just remember thinking, I don't know who I am or what this is anymore. I, I've got someone at my door. I'm embarrassed because I think they may have just overheard me snapping at my kids. I'm still in my pajamas literally from like two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was just didn't recognize myself anymore. Guy and I didn't have much time to spend with each other developing our relationship still at that point either. And so when I opened the door, thank goodness, it was my neighbor down the road who was very hard of hearing. He was an old bachelor. And I thought, okay, I'm safe. Maybe he didn't hear me just now. <laughs> but it, it was truly a turning point for me where I realized that my triggers were not going to change. And if I could say that to any new parent, it, whether it's your parenting or your marriage relationship, well, the thing that we've learned and discovered is that your triggers will always be there. They will always uh, be, be presenting themselves. There's always opportunities to get frustrated and angry and exasperated with your life and with the people in your life and under your roof. But we can start to make a shift where we stop reacting in anger and frustration and we start responding with more gentle and for us biblical responses where we look at these triggers instead of the things that set us off and irritate us. We start reframing our thinking about these triggers. If your kids are always making you late, if your husband always forgets to pay the bills, if you are just weary and exhausted because your lives are overscheduled and too busy. These things don't have to be triggers toward anger and frustration. They can actually be opportunities, opportunities for growth personally and times of you know teaching and training for your kids. If they're always talking back to you, you know this is an opportunity. It's a signal that they need a little bit more coaching of how they're, they should be talking with you. And you can practice that with them. If your spouse and you, you notice that you're always being triggered over a specific thing. For Guy and I, honestly, it was backseat driving. I was a backseat driver. <laughs> and in the car, we'd have a lot I of arguments. Yes. You know, we noticed this pattern. In front of the kids. Yeah, yeah so yeah. we had to really stop and evaluate. These triggers, they're either going to continue to tear us apart. I'm going to continue to feel like an angry, hopeless mom who's damaging her kids. Or I can look at these triggers as a chance for me to change because the triggers aren't gonna change. I have to change the way I'm responding to these things in my life. So you've laid out 31 triggers and we could spend the next 19 hours unpacking them one by one and really give people information. But 
I, I think it might make even more sense if all of us on this on this podcast choose a couple that trigger us and uh, what it means to us and and how maybe we can be aware of the trigger, but then choose differently. So I'm going to begin with Guy. Guy, you wrote half this book. Some of these triggers are yours. Some of them are triggers that your spouse has. If you could pick some from the external or internal variety, what are... Let's begin with one. What's, what's one trigger that you wrote about that really, uh, man, this is close and personal and here's what it is. I think I would, I would say, you know, one of the ones, and it's really kind of interesting is it's when, when you're no longer friends. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for me, I really, um, because of all of the changes that I went through in the first, I'd say five, four to five years of our marriage, with uh, job changes. I left one really big job and started a whole new career. Then I got laid off two or three years later from a company where we were in a, lived in a small town. Um, so I was so focused on career and trying to provide for the family. And I felt like I got caught up in this tidal wave of parenting, stress at work, stress at home, that I forgot about Amber. I honestly, uh, we no longer had a friendship. We stopped dating. We were literally just functioning to try and get through each day. And that was something that was really not great for us because I personally feel like our relationship is probably one of the most important things in our family because my kids are watching Amber and I and how we relate and they're formulating how they in the future are going to date, how they're going to love how they're going to parent, how they're going to get married and what yeah. they're going to be like. And if I'm not giving them a picture of what that looks like right now, they're not going to grow up to have a picture to, to inspire them to do the same in the future. So I had to really take a step back and realize that I need to date my wife. I need to be friends with my wife and we need to go back to why was she so attractive to me in the beginning? Um, why did we want to date each other? Why did we laugh and have fun back then? And that was something that was just so important to me. So even in our, our a group that we went through the book with a few months ago uh, in a private Facebook group, I had one day just encouraged everyone. I said, hey, I'm, I'm asking Amber out for a date next Friday night. We need it. We're not going to spend a lot of money. We're going to probably go have coffee at a bookstore. And I challenge everyone in, in our group, which is about 300 couples, to do the same thing. Just put the challenge out there. And a week later, Amber and I are out on our date. I take a picture on our date at um, the bookstore, at the bookstore <laughs> with our coffees, laughing, having a great time. And I post it on that marriage site. And suddenly, over the next hour, I had a flood mm. of literally almost hundreds of other people that were either also on dates with their spouses or had gone on a date the day before or were going that weekend. And everyone caught the same fever and was like, you're right. This is something we all we need to do. don't make time for this enough. And yeah. it was just amazing mm -hmm. to see that transformation. Everyone was like, this was so wonderful. And we're now going to set aside time weekly or at least monthly to literally have that time for us to continue to grow in our friendship because of how important that is. Guy, for the listeners right now who are thinking to themselves, man, I'm really glad they figured it out, or at least they're trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm glad mm -hmm. he wanted to fall back in love with her. But I got nothing. There's no spark for this person seated across from me, laying next to me, doing life with me anymore. The, the love is gone. The friendship is gone. And as soon as the kids are gone, I'm gone. For, the, for those who are feeling that way right now, what, what advice might you give? It's ironic that we're talking with you, John, and that this is, uh, you know, living inspired. For me, the word inspired means 
purposefulness and taking action. There's something that inspires you to take action. And for us, that's exactly what it, what it was. I just think that you have to remember how important that your, your marriage relationship is, um, not only to yourselves or to your family, but even to your community and to all the other things that you do. It, it, it should be something that, that is a, a place of inspiration for your lives. And that's Amber and I, you know, we wrote this book knowing that we, we don't have it figured out. We have learned a lot. We are still working through a lot of these triggers ourselves. And so I have to have to actively remember every week or every couple of weeks that I need to continue to grow my friendship with my wife. And so there's a purposefulness in our planning and action and communication and, and to, were, to make sure that that there happens. There were plenty of times I, I wanted nothing to do with Guy, like you described, John. And in those moments, I had to reflect back on what is the purpose of it all? Why bother keeping going in the direction with this man? Mm -hmm. And what it boiled down to for me was that I had made a vow and a commitment and that I took it seriously. In fact, on our wedding day, Guy and I said as part of our vows, it's very unromantic, but we knew the statistics. And so we said loud and clear for all of our, our friends and loved ones to hear, I will not divorce you. And so having that line in our vows, I think a lot of people intend that they will never allow their marriages to fall apart, but they don't necessarily say that specifically. But we did, and I think we did that knowing that there was going to be a challenge ahead of us, and there was. But when I felt like I didn't wanna try anymore, I'll be honest, one of the things that did keep me going was my kids. I wanted us to be successful in our marriage for their sake, but I also knew that life is brief. None of us knows what one day will bring forth. Tomorrow could be the last day of mine on this earth. Did I really want to just trudge through the next week, the next month, the next year, just to try to get through it? That is not what I wanted for my life. And I knew that there were things about this man that I loved and cared about initially. And so we tell, for me, what, what the first thing I had to do when I was in those very dark places is I had to wake up every day and I would pray and I would ask God to help me. Help me to see my husband as you see him because I believe that God loves and values every person on this planet, no matter what your age or stage or race or where you come from or what you do, God loves you unconditionally. And so I wanted to start thinking about him and seeing him with different eyes. And so I had to do just one practical thing every day. And that was, I had to write down something that I appreciated and valued about my husband. Mm. And I could not have echoed those things out loud if you were to ask me. So it, it was a fight for me to just write it down. And little by little, that started to change my attitude. One of the chapters in the book is when you need an attitude adjustment. And I needed an attitude adjustment because I had become so focused on the ways that my husband was not meeting my expectations instead of what are the ways that I can understand where he's coming from and appreciate and value what he does do and how can I change my attitude and what a blessing if that has an impact on him too. But I knew that it had to start with me, that the triggers weren't gonna change until I changed. In 2016, we wrote a book and a launch called On Fire, which led to this crazy, wonderful, busy season in our family and in my professional life. 
And at the end of that year, I realized that life was great professionally, but I was kind of falling a little bit away from my wife, just slowly. It was a slow fade. And so on January 1, I wrote her a love letter and I kept it in a journal and I told no one about it. And I did the same thing on January 2, just pointing out one cool thing I saw her do that day. And then January 3 and January 4, all the way until Christmas morning, 2017. And on that morning, I gave her this journal that was filled with coffee and red wine and ticket stubs and everything else that we'd been through together that year. And I handed it to her. Wonderful. It it was so awesome. But I think for us, it was probably the best year of our marriage because in finding good things in her, I was showing up as a different guy. I was a much better spouse and it was being reflected in the way she was loving me back. So for those wondering, can it work still? Um, gosh, for me, one of the best things I've done is just to take inventory of all the cool things Beth is doing. And it was every day. There were plenty of things to point out. It's wonderful. Yeah, Uh, that's exactly what I'm talking about, John. And, and so you and I are both living proof that that has a lot of power and inspiration behind it to draw your hearts back together again. One of my triggers, and I, you're, you're calling out many in the book. You call out 31. I'm sure I, I touch on maybe 28 of them or so. But one <laughs> of them that really spoke to me is when you are weary and exhausted. I, I find that I do my worst work professionally, my worst parenting, my worst marriage, my worst health, my worst anything when I'm really wiped out, exhausted, tired. And I also think, guys, that we work, play, and live in a community that generally is showing up weary and exhausted. This is just the way we are now. So for those of us who have a trigger when we are weary and exhausted, tell us about that trigger and tell us how we can move through it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the the weariness and the exhaustion, I think presents itself in many different forms. We can be weary and exhausted physically. We can be weary and exhausted emotionally. We can be weary and exhausted spiritually. And sometimes we're all of those in one fell swoop. And Our culture today, even just around the world, tends to be pretty fast paced. We're we're busy, we've got a lot on our plates. Um, And a lot of times too, we're looking at the world on social media and we're comparing our lives in their current state to the often non-reality that's presented to us online. And that makes us, our our hearts drop a little bit. Like we're not living our best lives. And that can have just a, a sense of burden like, what's wrong with my life? Why am I not thriving in the way that I see these picture perfect presentations on Instagram or wherever we may see them? And and we do, we just become caught up in the rat race. And and there's a lot of reasons to be weary. Some of us are weary just from the arguing and the conflict with our spouse or with our teenagers. And there are a lot of reasons to feel discouraged. And sometimes we feel like we don't have a lot to give anymore. Um, How can I keep trudging through when I'm already so weary and exhausted. For me, you know, the example, there's so many examples. Your podcast is a a perfect presentation of this, of people who were kind of at the end of their rope and found it within themselves. Um, For us, God is is a big part of our lives and, and he helps us as our example to keep going. But I think it's important to remember that we can dig deeper. I think we can. And we can go that extra mile when we think we can't keep going, that we can. The human spirit is very strong and very powerful to be able to keep putting one foot down in front of the other and to not lose hope. But in addition to that, just inevitable strength that I think we all possess to keep going. And and I hope that if there's a listener that is weary and exhausted and at the end of their rope, I want to tell them 
this isn't the end of the rope. As long as you're living and breathing, your story isn't over yet. There's always hope and opportunity for growth and for change and for strength if you're willing. And so dig a little deeper, keep putting one foot down in front of the other. But at the same time, I think there are some practical things we can do to alleviate some of the pressures of those burdens that we're feeling. For us, it's really important that we're involved in community. I think that when we don't allow others into our lives to help us carry some of our burdens, um, we're not finding some of the rest that we need. When we're not present in other people's lives to help them carry their burdens, we're robbing them of rest that they need by not carrying their burdens for them. And so I think it's important when we're weary and exhausted to not isolate, hmm. but instead to really practically get back into community. You know, have, are, are you a member of a, of a church? Is there a church community? Um, you know, Guy was raised, he mentioned earlier, doing Boy Scouts and, and in community theater and all kinds of different outreaches. There's things that we can all do to get plugged back in. I think some of us are hesitant to do that because we don't want anybody to know that we struggle or that we're weary or that we don't have it all together. And so, you know, it's been humbling for Guy and I to air some of our dirty laundry and, and to yeah. share our struggles. But we have found that people have not judged us for that, by and large. Most people finally are breathing a sigh of relief and saying, oh, me too. Yeah, I feel that way too. That's a struggle mm -hmm. for me too. I'm exhausted too. And then we get a chance to help other people. So I think definitely getting involved in community is one of the best things that we can do and to, to share our burdens with other people and to let other people share their burdens with us. So for all of us in relationships with an intimate partner, there are days and weeks and months sometimes where you go to bed, you meet in the middle of the bed, you, you cuddle, you hug, life is awesome. It's like you're dating again, it's just awesome. And then there are seasons, whether it's an hour or a week or longer, where you see how far you can get across from that person when you're laying next to them, them in the same bed. And it, it, it might only be two or three feet, but it feels like miles, miles apart. Guy, how do you begin to build the bridge with communication when you're just mad, you're just angry, she's ticked you off again, and it's just not working? How, how do you begin to build that bridge back so that you come back together and you can meet in the middle again? For us, it, it really is the communication and honestly, planning. You know, we I think knowing that we, we go into those kinds of moments from time to time. Uh, Amber and I are purposeful to defeat that before it comes up. And part of what we do is we sit down together at least once a month. We actually do it a little more often. Mm -hmm. um, and just like we coordinate our calendars together, but it's not just our calendars of what we're doing every day. It's it's a goals and what are you looking to do? What do you want to do? You know, what's important to you right now? It's it's really talking about all those things and, and this open communication that we do during the high times that I think a lot of times can carry us through the low times. And so it really is a purposeful planning um, and, and sharing communication that we do together throughout the month that really helps to carry us through the ebbs and flows of our relationship. Mm. Yeah, so we'll, we'll set a coffee date. You know, we, we encourage couples that are in that place you know, we, we want to be proactive, right? We don't want to always be operating on the defensive. We want to be on the offensive in our relationship. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, we just operate in the defensive mode all the time with each other. We just kind of uh, have conversations in the aftermath of chaos or conflict. We don't really get anywhere. 
one of the things that just as a simple practical tool like Guy is describing is that we encourage people, if you can do it once a, every two weeks, that's best, but at least once a month. Commit to saying, whether it's after the kids go to bed if you have kids or if you can have a babysitter come, maybe it's Sunday afternoon for a couple hours or early Saturday morning or on a Friday night twice a month. Set aside a time where you give yourselves permission to just do a little checkup like you're going to the doctor. During those times, we give each other permission. Tone of voice and body language is so key. But when we know this is the time set aside for this purpose to communicate, what are our needs? What are our problems that we can try to proactively work through together? Then it makes it so much easier. So I can come to that coffee time with Guy and say, okay, I'm actually feeling a little left out right now. I know we're in a busy season, but I don't feel like we're friends right now. I don't feel like we are building time just for us to do something that's fun together. And I miss that. You know, what can we do? And then we'll put a specific plan in place. You know, we'll write something on the calendar. Guy can come to me and say, you know what? I I love you. I know you care about me, but your tone of voice lately, I feel like you're criticizing me a lot. And I know that that's not your heart. I know you love me, but I feel criticized, especially when you say something like this. Could you soften your tone with me this month? And I'll say, yes, that's the thing I'm going to work on. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry for that. So when we come together and we give each other permission to nicely address a thing or two for that period of time, it opens up the communication. We feel heard. You know, a lot of times people don't feel heard. Like the other person's not really listening. They don't really care. And if you're a couple where you're so fractured that your spouse wouldn't even be willing to have a meeting like that, then we encourage you to seek some kind of counseling, to talk to a pastor or a minister of some sort and get some good counsel for that kind of thing. But if you're a pretty typical couple that maybe don't have any really severe extreme issues going on, but you're just having these triggers in your marriage, you know it's not the best that it could be. Having a time together and talk in this way, we think can radically change your relationship. So I wrote down about 20 quotes from your book. It really, really well done. And one of them was being proactive in our marriages prevents us from being reactive in our marriages, which you've yeah. just talked about right there. I'm going to share That's three more, great. and then we're going to walk through the Live Inspired Seven. Another quote that I wrote down is this, making our spouses happy is not our job, but it should be our yeah. delight. So just succinctly tell me what that means to you. Making our spouses happy, that's not our job, but it should be our delight. Think about how much you get back when your spouse is already joyful and happy. And it's something that that just, it's like this natural outpouring that that you end up giving to each other. And so you benefit greatly when your spouse is happy and joyful as well. Yeah. And, you know, one of our favorite Bible verses is, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's that golden rule, right? If both of us were doing that, if both of us were treating others as we know they want to be treated, as they would like to be treated, then you really can't go wrong. You know, if that was just your your focus for even a week, I think it could have a profound impact. And really, that's not our job, like we say in the book, but it should be our delight because ultimately, you know, love wins. Mm. Love covers a multitude of wrongs. Love mm. covers over a lot of sins. You know, love and grace go hand in hand. Grace is this idea of giving people what they don't deserve. 
And I can think of time and time again when Guy has given me grace. I know I've been in a bad place. I've said something rude or I've yelled at him or whatever. And he comes back at me just with kindness and giving me what I don't deserve. And it just melts me. Maybe not even in that moment, but it has an impact on my heart. And so when we when we treat other people that way, when we want to make them happy, when we want to offer them love and grace, it's really not our job, but it is a delight to do that when you really do love and care for someone. Well said, and here's another quote. Some of our biggest marriage triggers don't result from what we do, but from what we neglect to do. Yeah, that's that proactive piece mm-hmm. again. You know, a lot of us know, oh, maybe, you know, I, I should do this, or I should offer this kind of encouragement to my spouse. I should plan a date. I, And then we just let things fall by the wayside. And that's why this book is filled with just a lot of ideas very practically so that we move away from the ideas of love and relationship into very practical, specific things that people can do, because that's really how change happens. It's not sitting back and thinking about our issues. It's really proactively doing something about it. You both are in marriage groups. You also both are raising little ones right now. So my final question to you both before we talk about the Live Inspired 7 is what's the best advice that you hope to be living by model that your kids are going to imitate? So in your relationship with one another, in your relationship in life with finances and faith and health and dreams and arguing and everything else that you do as a couple, what are you hoping that your kids are picking up in the way mom and dad are doing life together? So we'll begin with Guy and then finish with Amber. Sure. I I really want my kids to see me believing the best about my wife and my kids. I think that's one thing that I fall short on often that I have to continually work on. So when my when my children respond to me in, in a way that I feel is inappropriate, I, I want to make sure that I'm looking at it through their perspective and knowing that ultimately they love me mm-hmm. and they're just growing and learning and going through some things themselves. And so I try to not take those things personally, um, even though it, it can be a challenge. But you know, I, I want them to see how I love their mother, even in the midst of stressful times and trying times and crazy times, but that ultimately I can take things uh, light and that that I can be an inspiration to them to continue on and just, you know, live life with joy and, and purpose. So that's really what I want to leave behind for them. And Amber, what are you hoping they are learning from you? You know, for me, I want them to have an example in front of them of the love of God in their lives and what that looks like. And for me, one of the things I say in marriage triggers is there's nothing that anger can do that love can't do better. And I want them to learn from us that even when we're frustrated, even when we're angry, even when somebody is unkind to us, we can come at them and cause conflict and fight fire with fire, but that that will never be the best option that the better option is to always love and to be kind, that we can set healthy boundaries when needed with people, certainly, but that really there's nothing that anger can do that love can't do better. You know, my son Quinn just recently, um, he came home from school before we were homeschooling, the year before we were homeschooling, and he had been the target of a bunch of just really unkind bullying at his school. And the kids were just particularly mean to him this one day. It almost makes me cry thinking about it. And they were so, so rude to him. And he came home and he's really a sweet little guy. 
And he said, mom, this is what the kids said and did to me. And we happened to be in the car, just he and I, on our way to the grocery store. And we hopped out of the car and I, I just said, son, I'm so sorry that happened. You know, just showing him empathy and saying, you know what? We could be really mad at them and we could say all kinds of nasty things back to them tomorrow. I said, but you know what? Let's not do that. You know what we can't do? We can't change what those people said and did, but we can get better ourselves. We can be loving ourselves. So let's look for ways we can be a light right here where we're at at the grocery store right now. And so he got all excited and he said, yeah, mom, let's do that. Let's find ways that we can be kind and we can help other people. And so we were on a mission. We jumped out of the car and he ran over. We see this huge ditch and there's this shopping cart upside down in a ditch, pretty low down. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I'm not quite sure how it got in there, but there's all these carts around. And he says, mom, he runs right over to this cart in the ditch. He says, mom, let's lift this out and let's take it back to the store. And I'm thinking, well, that's not really what I had in mind, but okay, I'll go with it. And so we wrestle down into this ditch and we lift this shopping cart up and out. And just as we're doing so, one of the guys whose job is to bring the carts in came toward us and he had this big grin on his face. And my son Quinn takes that cart over to him and goes, here you go, just beaming, gives him a big fist bump. The guy is grinning from ear to ear, says, thank you. And we, he bounces along into the store and I follow after him and I thought, that's it. That's what we can do, whether we're triggered in our marriages or with our kids or other relationships are difficult or people are unkind. The key is we can't change other people. We can't change necessarily our circumstances, but we can be loving and kind ourselves and we can be a blessing to others because there really is nothing that our anger, our hatred can do that love can't do better. And so that's what I want my kids to to take to heart. And I feel like we're getting glimpses of that now. And I'm just looking forward to seeing that grow. That's awesome. All right, my friends, you, you have made it through the gauntlet. We are gonna finish drawing by asking what we call the Live Inspired Seven. And we'll just go back and forth. And Amber, you won the coin toss at the beginning of the, of the show. So you get to go first, my friend. Okay. Question number one is what is the best book besides marriage triggers that you have ever read? <laughs> so what's the best book you've ever read? So the best book I've ever read is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. I'm a lit former literature teacher. So that's the book I've read more than any other outside of the Bible. And it is my absolute favorite for many reasons, but it's a woman of strength and character who kind of lives out what you you talk about on um, Living Inspired, mm. John, just um, overcoming circumstances and doing good toward others. And in the end, it only is a, a blessing for yourself. So Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre is my favorite book. Awesome. Guy, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little boy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, man, that's tough. <laughs> you should have won the coin toss, man. You would have been yeah, able to talk about yeah. a book. I, 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 see, as a kid, I was so involved in everything. And I was just, I was good at sports. I was great at Boy Scouts. I was great at school. I was super active with all kinds of things. And I wish that I could have the same kind of balance today and the same kind of joy and purposefulness that I had as mm. a child. I think that I feel the weight of some of those decisions and those things now. And I, I know that they stop me sometimes where there are areas where I could just push through and achieve great things. 
I allow my circumstances to kind of stop me. And when I was a kid, I didn't do that because I didn't know that there were possibilities of things stopping me. I just pushed forward and just went for it. That's so well said. So if your home caught fire, Amber, and Mm -hmm. your bird, we talked about that before we started recording, (laughs) your boys, your animals, everything is out safe. And you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing. What's the one item you come running back out with? Well, honestly, it it would be my Bible because I have read it every year since 2000, cover to cover. So this is my 20th year. But I also have this particular Bible. It's falling apart. The leather is completely off the backs and the sides. And it has a ton of notes in it that I've handwritten over the years. I got it when I was just in elementary school. It's been all over the world with me. It's been my comfort. And so I would be really saddened to lose that because of all of the history that it has and all of my notes. So that would be the one thing that I would grab. Mm. Guy, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anyone, anyone at all, living or dead, who would you want to be having seated right next to you enjoying this conversation? I don't even have to think about this one. Um, My father passed away when I was fresh out of college. And I never had an opportunity to have an adult conversation with my father and to learn from him as an adult and to talk with him as an adult. And and without a doubt, that is the number one thing. He was one of the most loving, generous, fantastic, short little Italian Hmm. stubby guys you could imagine. He would throw his arm around anyone who he first met. He was the first person to greet people at church and just made them welcome. Uh, and he just was so sweet and wonderful. And I I didn't have the value of having a, an adult relationship with my father. And so that would, without a doubt, mm-hmm. that would be the number one. Mm-hmm. Amber, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received is you don't have to figure this all out today. I tend to want to solve all the world's problems immediately. And it puts a lot of undue pressure on myself. And so that was really freeing for me when a good friend of mine a few years ago said that. I've never forgotten it. I start letting my problems get away from me. And then I just remember, I don't have to figure this all out today. Mm. It helps me rest. (laughs) Great advice for all of us to heed. And and Guy, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Let me wipe the tears from the last question you you asked. Yeah. By the way, uh, the idea of being able to sit next to a parent, in particular when they're no longer this side of eternity with us. Yeah. What I hope our listeners always receive when they hear a guy or a lady share like you just did, Guy, is the opportunity for many of us to have that conversation now. Mm. Many of us just, uh, I'll call them at Christmas. I'll call them next. And why wait to have these adult loving conversations now with the people that matter to you? So that when you were sharing and I was wiping my tears, that's what I was thinking. When I leave this podcast and I'm leaving here in three minutes, I'm going to call my dad. I'm not going to miss the opportunity to tell him today that I love him. Good. That's wonderful. Awesome. Absolutely. So my 20-year-old self, I would tell my 20-year-old self to to love the people who are in my life, to not worry so much about what tomorrow is going to bring and really, really focus on what I can do today to make today just absolutely fantastic for me and for those around me. I was so worried and so mm-hmm. thinking about the future and trying to plan that I really missed a lot of a lot of things in the day when I was 20. And I don't know why I did that, but I, I felt the pressure and the stress at that time. And 
um, I would absolutely make sure that I, I was living for today. Mm. The final question will be asked of both of you, and it's a short question with a short answer, we hope. Here it comes first to you, Amber. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She loved God and she loved others. <laughs> Short, succinct, and powerful. And Guy, mm -hmm. your follow-up to that. It has been said that all people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Guy, how do you want yours to read? Happiness in life is not found in the destination, but through the journey. Well, I'm talking to two who are exhibit A and B of that, and they are exhibit A and B also of love, even through the difficult triggers of life. Amber and Guy, I want to thank you for your work, for your words, and for the time today. Thank you, John. Thank you, it's John. It's been a total pleasure. We're so grateful for you and your commitment to inspiring people. Mm. You inspire us. <laughs> Absolutely. My friends, tune it in right now. The book is called Marriage Triggers. It is in stores everywhere. The couple who wrote it are called Amber and Guy Leah. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Before you get on with your day today, I want to celebrate with you an incredible year that 2020 is going to be. I've whispered about it on social media. If you've heard me recently speak at a live speaking event, I've made a few mentions to it there. And I've even shared a little bit of it on a Monday moment back in December. Well, my newest book, In Awe, hits bookshelves in May 2020. As you know, I wrote this book with my four kids in mind. These little ones have so much joy for the day and so much optimism for life. They have inspired me to recapture and harness my childlike senses of wonder in order to become more engaged, more successful, and more fulfilled in life. And in this world of negative news cycles, loneliness as an epidemic, and the chronic struggle of doing more and more and more with less and less and less, my new book, In Awe, will provide you the tools to help rediscover the childlike qualities of wonder, of curiosity, of openness, of belonging, and of freedom that will free you, that will permit you to live life more fully, more playfully, and more joyfully. As we dive into this new year, there is no better time than now to pre-order a copy of In Awe. It will remind you of what we once so freely enjoyed and how returning to it will positively transform our communities, our organizations, and our families. My friends, for a limited time, I'm including an interactive In Awe playbook with all pre-orders. This In Awe playbook will provide you hours of activities, giving you the opportunity to start implementing some of the lessons taught in the book as you joyfully await its arrival in May of 2020. So my friends, I want you today, before we go into this episode, to visit me at readinawe.com and pre-order your copy of the book. I believe it's the kind of book that's going to begin a movement reminding us that life is not always easy, but it is good, and the best is yet to come. So again, visit me, readinawe.com. My friends, today is your day. Live inspired.